Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. I invite you to grab your copy of God's Word if you have it with you and open to Genesis uh, chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 20 and then read all the way down through chapter 9, verse 17. So a decent chunk, although we've not, we haven't read the whole narrative of, of the flood account, I encourage you to go ahead and take some time and, and read through that. We have covered it in our Wednesday night groups. We're working through the whole passage where we just sit around and read the whole text, but not going to spend all our time reading the text this morning. Just looking at, starting in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, down through chapter 9, verse 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease." And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything." But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen, in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. 
Grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. It's getting strong. So uh, as we look at this last half of the narrative, we've, we've split the narrative of Noah and the ark into two sections. Last week, we kind of went, uh, the floodwaters were increasing, the sinfulness of man is increasing, and the floodwaters come on the earth. And then we stopped kind of in 8, chapter 1, that God then remembers Noah. But our, our big idea for this morning, if you get lost in the weeds and some of the other things we're talking about, our big idea for this morning is that God remembers his people and his promises. That Noah is not forgotten by God, right? He remembers him and he, he takes action to rescue Noah from the judgment that Noah and all mankind did deserve. And then he makes a promise. Now it's interesting, we'll get to this, but that the promise, the covenant that we, we read about this morning was actually promised earlier in Genesis uh, when God promises to Noah, I will establish a covenant with you. God makes a promise to Noah and then he fulfills it on the, on the other side of the flood. But this is our big idea that God remembers his people and his promises. You ever heard the phrase over promise and under deliver? Like it's kind of a common like, phrase that goes around, don't overpromise and underdeliver. If you're not sure what that concept means, when you get done here, go walk the freezer section at Hy-Vee, okay? And all these pictures of all these boxes are beautiful meals. I mean, a Hot Pocket has never looked better than the cover of a Hot, hot Pocket box, right? And then, so it's promising a lot. And then you get home and you throw it in the microwave and maybe it underdeliver as well a lot. All right, so the freezer section, that's what it is, over-promising and under-delivering. Uh, one of Darla and I's favorite stories just in our journey through the years of ministry, we were in a, with a group of people, and they were trying to set us up with a mentor. And we, I mean, it was just someone to kind of help us in the ministry and, and you know, just kind of help walk us along through what, what life and living in ministry is. And there was one individual in this group of people who lived closest to us, which was like an hour and a half away from here, and uh, they kind of all turned and looked at this individual, you know, do you want to, to kind of take them on? And, and he just flat out says, well, I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. First, I was really insulted. I'm like, well, I guess uh, my pride was instantly like, well, guys, I guess he doesn't think he's not that interested in us. But the other side of me was like, I was really thankful for his honesty. Then he's like, you know, I'm not going to be able to deliver on this promise. And so I'm not going to promise something that I'm not going to be able to keep up on. So I, on, a, upon reflection, I was really happy with his answer. At least he was honest. Because far too often, we are met with people in this world who overpromise something to us and underdeliver. And even as I say that this morning, I think there's a high likelihood that there's people in this room that think I've overpromised and underdelivered, and maybe likewise in the room with other people. It's just a part of our human reality. If, if I've overpromised to you, um, come remind me. I've likely forgotten, and let me overpromise to you again. No, just kidding. <laughs> I've likely forgotten what I've said I would do, but like, it's just a human reality. Of, of we have the best of intentions like many times. And so we say, yeah, this is what I'll do or I'll, I'll follow up on this or let's do this or whatever. And we overpromise and we under deliver. Uh, we all know this reality of unfulfilled promises. The idea of a promise is a very early concept in our lives, right? Um, who else here loves, and I don't mean just likes, but who else loves Bluey? Does anybody else besides me, my wife can raise you? Has anyone even seen Bluey? 
Andy, thank you. If you got little kids, all right. So do you, I, it's a little kid show, but trust me, Bluey is amazing, all right? It's a, it's a little uh, blue healer, Australian. The accents are great, but he has one, there's one episode called The Promise, and that's all about them trying to trick each other into over-promising so they can catch them breaking the promise of each other and kind of, it's a really fun episode. But, but even Bluey is communicating to us the importance of promises, the importance of, of understanding this concept of promise. And so our text this morning, we encounter very specific promises from God. And we need to see uh, this, this human example, I think is helpful to see over-promising and under-delivering, not so that we can have uh, understand God better. That's why he over-promises and undelivers. not at all. It's for contrast. It's a contrast. We know over-promising and under-delivering all over the place in our lives. God is different. God is not the God who over-promises and under-delivers. He is the God who makes His promises and He fulfills them to His people. And so we can live with this contrast. Whenever you get over-promised something and under-delivered and it upsets you, you can take that into worship and you can say, thank you, Father, that you are not like this time that I've been over-promised to and under-delivered. So that's where we're going. But remember where we are now in this narrative, right? Last week, we looked at this increasing wickedness of mankind on the earth. And our big idea from last week was that only by God's grace can man escape the judgment his sin deserves. Only by God's grace can man escape the judgment his sin deserves. God was grieved that he had made man because his proclivity was to evil only all the time, right? We read that passage there in, in the start of chapter 6, and it's just this redundant phrase. He knew that he was evil in his heart. He was only evil continually all the time. No stop. He was evil. I mean, there's just this redundancy going on of mankind's proclivity towards sin. And we see that the sinfulness of man doesn't earn the, the comfort of God. It earns the judgment of God. That God, as a just God, when sin abounds, his judgment is the only right response. God decides to send a flood upon the earth and wipe out all of mankind and every living creature on earth. That's the, the stark reality of the flood. And yet, God sets his favor right upon one man named Noah. God's grace falls on Noah. It says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Nothing in our text tells us that Noah deserves God's favor, but God has mercy upon him. And this results then in Noah hearing God's command and being obedient to it. God says, build the ark this way, do this, gather these animals. God commands him and it's happened by Noah's obedience. And so you can look at like a place like uh, Hebrews 11 uh, verse 7, talking about Noah. It's right after the section on Enoch, this chapter, this hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says that by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham believed God. God had made a promise. God had set his grace upon him, given him instructions. And Noah, by faith, believing God and his promises, is an inheritor of this righteousness that comes by faith. 
So the command comes, build this ark. And as the years move on, the animals must have begun to migrate towards this location and eventually the ark is completed and the loading process begins. Noah and his wife, his three sons, him, Sham, and Japheth, Japheth, whatever you want to say, they gather together and they go into the ark and the text tells us in a, that God himself shuts them in. That they go into the ark, they wait there for seven days. Maybe that's a further sign to the the, the condemned world around them, that God's mercy and grace is here. Here is the ark. Here's the way of escape. Seven days they sit in the ark. No one else comes. God shuts them in and the floodwaters begin. The deluge comes upon the earth. Mankind is destroyed except for Noah and his family. And this was just judgment. All who find themselves outside of the ark which is a type of Christ, okay? So we kind of, that was at the end of the sermon. We'll get there again this morning. But the ark is a foreshadowing. It's a type of Christ. All who find themselves outside of the ark will be left under the wrath and judgment of God. That is the message of Scripture, that there is an ark. His name is Jesus Christ. There is a refuge from, a refuge from the, for the wrath of God and the just judgment of God, and it is Christ. But all who are left outside of this ark, they will be held accountable and will find themselves under the just wrath and judgment of God. So lest it go unsaid. Like, I don't want to, this is one of the big parts of the, and we all want to get to the good part about being on the ark, but one of the big points of the flood is this reality. Less, so it doesn't go unsaid. This will culminate, or culminate, if you're found outside of the ark, this will culminate in an eternal punishment in a place called hell. That that is where God's just judgment is finally and eternally meted out. The rebellion will go on. Hatred of God will persist. And God and His justice and His righteousness and His holiness will pour out His wrath upon the rebellious. You know, this is the main illustration that the, the New Testament goes to when it, when it talks about the flood. It talks about the warning of, you know, in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and having a good time. And all of a sudden, the floods came upon them and it was too late. The Noah, Noah and the flood is used in the New Testament as a warning passage to say, be ready, trust Christ, live for God, however you want to look to Christ, because Jesus will come at a time when we are not expecting him and we ought to be ready lest we find ourselves outside of the ark of God. It is used as a warning to not live your life with your head in the sand, partying and pretending that there is no judge because there is. It is urgent that we find ourselves in good standing with him and that comes only by being in the ark, which is a type of being found in Christ. So then there's this turn in, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. It says, God remembered Noah. So we've plunged, it's kind of like a, like you read Romans 1, 2, and 3, which we're in the midst of, and you're diving deeper and deeper into, their, into the depravity of man. Like Romans 3, it gets really dark. Like it just gets deeper and darker and worse. And then it turns the corner there at the end of Romans chapter 3, uh, by saved by grace through faith. It, it, it turns the corner. And this is kind of this turning of the corner here in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, because we've just seen this waters come along, and then it says that God remembers Noah. Not that God had somehow forgot him, but the waters, God, God begins to remember him to act on his behalf. 
There's images of a, a new creation, the wind blowing. There's all sorts of like recreation imagery going on here that we don't have time to get into. But God remembers him, the waters begin to recede and the, and the ark lands on dry ground. Now at this point, some interesting developments happen. And one is this fulfillment of the covenant that God had promised that he was going to give to Noah. Covenant's very important in Scripture. It's an agreement between two parties, right? Which is what our catechism was this morning. Uh, sometimes I covenant, it's a promise. It's, it's, this is what's going I promise to do this. They're very important as Scripture. When we look at covenant and we do some theological work, there are some covenants that are likely already in place. We talk about the, the covenant of grace. It's an eternal covenant that God had maybe even in eternity past. There's a covenant of works kind of established with Adam and Eve, right? He says, don't eat this, eat of every tree, but not this one. Uh, there's, there are these covenants that are laid down, but this is the first time that the word is really used, this idea of covenant. There's this first explicit mention of this word, and it's referred to often as the Noahic covenant. The shortest explanation is that it is God's promise to not destroy the earth again by water, and the sign that is given is the bow in the clouds, the rainbow. I mean, it doesn't call it the rainbow here, but it says, I've hung my bow in the clouds. If that confused you, that's, that's the rainbow. He's, I'm going to hang, and it isn't that God all of a sudden made uh, water and prisms and all that stuff work at that point. It's likely that that was always there. I mean, you don't have to change uh, science and nature, but, but this, this natural sign was going to be God's sign of his covenant that he was not going to destroy the world again by the flood. So God remembers Noah and he makes a covenant with him. God acts on behalf of his people. God remembers Noah. He makes a covenant with him. And we might notice as we read through this how God instigates all of this activity. God gives grace to Noah. God blesses Noah. God establishes a covenant with Noah. There's this overwhelming evidence of the prerogative of God to save his people. He's working on behalf of them to rescue them. To, he has set his favor upon Noah and he acts to save them. This is what provoked uh, writers like John Newton to write Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see that he's blown away that this grace of God that doesn't obligate, this, that doesn't, we cannot obligate God to save us. There is, as his creatures, there is nothing we can do to obligate him. And yet, God in his mercy sets his grace upon a people to rescue for his own purposes and his own glory. No obligation from God to save anyone from, this, from the flood. But in his kindness and mercy, he rescues, he secures, and he promises to keep. So we also see in this narrative, this promise from God. There's, this is when Jim mentions that A.W. Pink uh, uh, quote about how in Genesis we have the seed form of just all these different doctrines. This is true. You can spend a lot of time digging into all the little interesting tidbits that come to us in this narrative. We see the promise to keep the seasons of the earth in place. Seed time and harvest will, will continue on out. We see the institution of some sense of government in that there's a death penalty, death penalty instituted. Cain, when he murders Abel, he gets mercy and he's, able, he's allowed to live. But God says now... The life is in the blood, and if you spill the blood of another human, guess what's required of you? Your own blood. There's some sense of capital punishment that's even brought up into this passage. 
You cannot take the life of other image bearers. And the, we see this repeated command as well. Many times it's up here in 8, chapter 17, but also here in 9.7, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. And that's going to come up more in a few chapters, this idea that God expects mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go out and fill the earth, and we'll get to more of that later in Genesis. But, so... Again, we're trying to cover a lot, so appreciate you bearing with me. But I want to reflect a bit on this truth about God, that he operates on the basis of promises. He never overpromises, and he always delivers. And this is such an important reality to grasp. Can you imagine, not to make this, imagine if you were Noah on this ark, you and your seven other family members, and all the animals that are there with you, can you imagine the moments you must have had that you've thought God has forgotten you? Likely, it's a year, right? We have the timeline, we add all the stuff together, the 150 days of the flood, and the 150 days of it continuing, that's 300, plus the 40 days of, of staying out the rate, all this stuff going on. It's a year, basically, that he's on this ark, floating with his family. Can you imagine the first night that the storm waters come up? Have you ever been on a cruise ship? And thankfully, I don't get motion sickness, but I've seen people get motion sickness, and it's terrible. <laughs> Can you imagine being on this boat? Sorry, yes. <laughs> Can you imagine being on this boat, and you and your family, they don't have Dramamine back then, <laughs> them and their whole family getting sick, all the animals getting seasick, and you're thinking, God, what have you done? You have forgotten me. How have I been abandoned? Like, this is some salvation. <laughs> Here I am, not, not dying out in the waters, but... Here I am seasick with all these animals and all of this judgment seems to have just come to me in a different way. The whole earth being covered in water, a year locked in this boat. Wouldn't he have wondered if God was actually punishing him, not saving him? Sometimes, sometimes, and I, this is difficult because we don't want to read ourselves into every text immediately. It's a dangerous way to read your Bible. But you can look at this and you think, how easy would it have been? How often in our own lives do we know this reality that it seems like God is not rescuing us, but actually maybe has abandoned us? <laughs> maybe this isn't rescue. Look at the circumstances of our lives or things going wrong and think maybe God isn't rescuing us. What if he's actually punishing us? But he wasn't. He wasn't. He was rescuing him. He was keeping his promises. God was persevering in his grace and care towards his people. It's the way the original audience, I think, would have read this at some level. Our God can be trusted to keep his promises as they would have come out of, uh, out of the exodus, out of Egypt, and wandered through the wilderness. And is God going to care for them? They could have read this text. Our God is a, is a covenant-keeping, a people-remembering God. And so a, a simple application is to ask this question, are you his do you find yourself in the ark that is in Jesus Christ? We don't have a literal flood today, but there is some kernel of truth here. God does not abandon his people, so we must ask, am I one of his people? Am I in the ark? Have I trusted in Christ? Um, Jesus reminds, uh, even like uh, John the Baptist, we read in this text yesterday morning in our, in our Bible study, John the Baptist, right? He's, he's baptized Jesus. He knows Jesus from his youth, that he's a sinless, perfect man. He testifies, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet in Matthew chapter 11, where do we find John? In a prison. 
waiting to get beheaded, basically, is how this is going to turn out. And he writes to Jesus, right? He sends, sends people to ask questions. Are you really the Messiah? What's going on? I thought you were saving me. Am I being punished? Have I got it all wrong? And, he's, and Jesus says, no one's greater on earth than John the Baptist. And yet he's questioning, man, all of this stuff going on. If, is God not a God who keeps his promises? Is God not a God who remembers his people? And Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That it may not turn out exactly the way you plan for it to turn out, but it is not that God has forgot his promises or his people, and he will work his eternal good purposes. Did all go as John the Baptist desired to know? Will we escape every flood? No, but God cares for his people, and he will carry them through it. But to end, I want to look back at Noah's first action. There at the start of chapter 9 or no, at the, end of, at the end of eight, this first action, the ark lands, Noah exits the ark, and something incredible happens here. There's this progressive revelation, really. There's this opening of understanding about how God works with his people. But we've mentioned animal coverings a few times in Genesis so far, right? When Adam and Eve sin, God clothes them, covers their shame with animal garments. And, and we talked about uh, that being a foreshadowing of some sort of an atonement where a life was taken to cover the shame of a sinner, essentially. And we see Cain and Abel, they bring sacrifices to God. They offer atonement of some sort to God. They offer sacrifices. And what we see in, in 8, 20, and 21 is a continuation of that ritual. Noah gets off of the ark and he makes what appears to be some sort of an atonement. He has survived the flood. Undoubtedly, he is grateful. But he takes some of these clean animals and the clean birds and he offers them as a sacrifice to the Lord. And scripture says it was a pleasing aroma to God. The Lord says in his heart, I'll never again curse, that there's some sort of atonement that happens here that pleases God. And this is type and shadow of a future coming sacrifice of atonement. We'll see this a lot as we go through Genesis. Type and shadow, all pointing to some coming reality. The ESV study Bible, this is not some fancy commentary I've got. This is just, just you get an ESV study Bible, says this in regards to this passage. This is attainable for everyone. The burnt offering of, of Noah here, the burnt offering soothes God's anger at human sin. So although human nature has not been changed by the flood, guess what? Noah's still a sinner. And that's what the end of chapter 9 is about. But Noah is still a sinner. It has not been changed. So although human nature has not been changed by the flood, God's attitude has changed. In spite of the human propensity to sin, atonement through sacrifice is possible, securing a peaceful relationship between the Lord and humanity. What's Noah's sacrifice pointing to? The coming once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 Verses 11 through 14 says this. This is Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he goes into this holy places in the heavens that is not made with hands. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. As pleased as God was with Noah's offering here of the clean birds and the clean animals, the writer of Hebrews is saying, how much more is God pleased with the offering of his son, the shedding of his son's blood, the pouring out of his life for what? For the atonement of his people. So that everyone confessing themselves as sinners, looking to this atonement, looking to this one who gave his life, who spilt his blood for the remission of our sins, for the remission of your sins, so that everyone looking to this atonement and trusting him would be brought into the family of God, would be brought into the ark and secured to God through all the floods of life and the ultimate floods of God's judgment. Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus is the better ark. Jesus is the greater Noah through whom true deliverance comes. And Jesus is the one who brings about the final new covenant. So what hymn writer Edward Mote was speaking of, you don't know that name, but he wrote the song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. If you've been around church much, maybe you've heard this song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. The third verse says this, His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Christ is the sure and steady anchor that we sang about. That when all around me gives way, his oath, his word to us, his covenant, his promises, and his blood. That he backed it up by giving his own life for the saving of his people. All of these things, they support us in the whelming floods of of this life. Application, simply this. If you are God's through Christ, we're getting ready to celebrate communion this morning. If you have turned from your sins and have trusted in Christ for your righteousness, if you have found yourself in Christ, in the ark, if you are God's through Christ, he will not forget you. God remembered Noah. No matter what it may seem like, no matter how hard and upsetting circumstances may be, no matter how much anxiety may wrap up in your mind, God does not forget his people. No force can drag you out of the ark. God has sealed you in. Where are we resting our trust? And while Noah offered a pleasing sacrifice of atonement to God, we now know of a pleasing once for all sacrifice. We don't offer it. Christ offered it himself. We by faith trust it, look to it, put our lives in his hand and rejoice in the one who offered himself for us. Let's pray. Father, as we do remember and rejoice in this once for all sacrifice and head into a time of communion, Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see this glorious atonement Father, would you humble our hearts? Give us, give us clearness in the reality of our own sinfulness. God, help us to see ourselves clearly and to know ourselves truly. That, Father, we are deserving 
of your judgment. And yet, you are a God who is merciful and gracious to his people, that there is an atonement that has been made. And Father, I pray that as we head into this, these next few minutes in a time of communion, that God, you would break every heart in repentance. And then God, give us faith to look to Christ and his sacrifice that we might trust in him, God. And if we've done that, God, that this would be a, rem a meal of remembrance that this has been done for us, that God does not forget his people and God keeps his promises. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.